Hello and welcome back to the Information Podcast. My name's Tim Nostrand. And I'm Graham Reynolds. CEO and CTO, respectively, of Information Technological Holdings. And before we get started, we just wanted to say thank you to all of our listeners who have reached out with such positive words of support. It's really been tremendous. And we just want to say that your feedback has been so incredibly helpful in making sure that we find the types of guests that you want to hear about and talk about the things that you want to hear about. So keep that up and we'll make this program exactly what you're looking for. We'll jump right into today's episode. We're sitting here with the CEO and co-founder of Mural in New York City, Vladimir Vukicevich. It's called the the mural digital canvas. Okay. And it's a physical product. You buy it, take it out of the box, you put it on your wall or you put it on an easel, and all of a sudden you have access to thousands of museums, galleries, artworks from, from around the world. Right. It's internet connected, so we've built out the full stack, the hardware, the firmware, the software, and the cloud platform. So we go to the museums. We license their artwork, and then you have access to that artwork through the mural platform. And really, we play in probably three industries, at least. Mm -hmm. um, the first is technology, obviously. Sure. This is a technology product. Um, the second is uh, art, yeah. <laughs> because we deal directly with artists, museums, galleries, different art organizations across the country and across the world. Uh, we have to have a deep knowledge of that industry as well. And then the third is really kind of a design and decor sector or industry as well. So this is a product that has to look and feel right for people's homes, for people's offices. So we work really hard with designers, um, with um, um, different uh, players in that market to help us make sure that it's something that would be worthy in a West Elm or Crate and Barrel or, or, or kind of a design element right. store. So what would you say your competitive landscape primarily looks like? Yeah, um, I, I think that's a that's a great question. Um, what, what, what we found is that we primarily compete with um, other things that people put on their wall. Okay. Uh, so um, what, getting a framed print is probably the most equivalent okay. uh, in that uh, it costs a few hundred dollars to frame something. Uh, it's not an original, but it, it looks and feels good. Um, so we don't really consider ourselves competing against you know, original art. Uh, on, on the flip side, we're actually seeing us growing that market because people can find an artist through our platform. They can fall in love with their art, and then all of a sudden they can buy the original or connect to the artist right. in, in a more integrated way. So I think the print market, the framed poster market, mm -hmm. is really kind of our direct com competition. Mm. But we believe that this product provides 100 times more value than that. So that's, that's, that's how we uh, position it. Absolutely. Yeah. It does feel like decorating a wall feels like a kind of thing that isn't isn't as universal yeah. as watching a television show or listening to music. Yeah, that's right. Um, particularly if you're renting. <laughs> right. uh, or if you're in an office that you might move out of. Or if you're in a co-working space. All of these use cases are great for the mural canvas. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, we're living more and more in dynamic 
environments. We move from one apartment to the other, less people are purchasing homes. So it's harder to nest. It's harder to customize your space. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's might, it might be even more dangerous because you don't want to invest too much in a space you might right. leave in a year or two. So the mural platform allows for that to happen in a much more seamless way, in a much more d- dynamic way. And so, yes, we feel like we're playing in an existing market, you know, the home decor um, kind of uh, personalization market, but also we're creating a whole new market. Right. We're opening up the idea of customizing your home, customizing your space to people who maybe were afraid or, or limited in doing so um, in, in the past. What's the difference between this screen yeah. and one of the, you know, a screen that you can get for one of those photo yeah, yeah. gallery yeah. kinds of things? Well, that's I don't a, know what those are called. Uh, digital, digital picture frames. frames. Digital yeah. picture frames. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, in some ways we view that as like, uh, that's the, the the Neanderthal ancestor. Uh, uh, to no offense uh, to, to 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 our product, to our product, um, and uh, kind of how I view it is like before the iPod, uh, there were many MP3 players. You know, Sony made one, Creative Labs made one. There was a bunch, and they were all kind of flawed in some right. way. You had to like download software, and you couldn't get music on it, and and it was challenging, and it was just a mess. And then the iPod came together, and it was like, holy moly, this product is really stellar. Mm-hmm. And it's stellar because of three things. It's stellar because the hardware is unique, and that's what we've done. We built a unique hardware product. Uh, as I mentioned, we we adapted it uh, for art through constant feedback from the artistic community. Right. There's a light sensor on board, so adjusts based on lighting conditions. There's a special cover that gives it kind of a sense of depth mm-hmm. and a sense of texture. So that hardware product, in and of itself, looks and feels different from any other display or screen. The second part is the, the interface itself. And remember the early iPods had that the track wheel and it was like, oh my right. what is this thing? Yeah. And so we've done that as well. We have a gesture control mechanism. You can just wave your hand in front of it to change it. And then the app itself really kind of naturally extends that um, experience on the mobile phone. And that user interface, that user experience is a step above or many steps above what the traditional picture frames were able to offer. Mm -hmm. And then the third part, which I think in some ways is the most important, is the content side. Uh, The iPod had iTunes. Uh, and for the first time, those the music and the hardware was integrated. And that's what we're doing. We have a whole, almost like an iTunes type of experience uh, or a Spotify type of experience for the content, for the beautiful artwork that extends naturally into the product. So you don't need USB cables. You don't need SD cards. You don't need all these kind of clunky things. You can just simply push content to it uh, or have content delivered to you uh, in a more passive way. Um, through the mural platform. We have thousands, tens of thousands of artworks available and you can also upload your own uh, content, your own photography, your own artwork in a seamless way. So it's that integration between the content uh, system and the hardware that is now fully seamless and fully interlinked that is very similar to what the iPod did Mm. in its transformation of, of the music market. And so that's that's how we view the, the major differences. You're like the Steve Jobs of the art world. Uh, well, yeah, let's not go that far. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, we, we learn a lot from good examples. Uh, so what are some statistics you can share about, you know, how many murals there are out there, how many partnerships you have, anything? Sure, sure. We, so we have about, you know, we have tens of thousands of the canvases in, in the market right now. And most of those have been sold over the last year, so it's well, it's growing pretty quickly. Uh, we have about 15,000 
artworks that we've published on the platform. Mm -hmm. uh, so that means artworks from museums, from galleries, from artists. Uh, and we have access to about 40,000, so that means we're adding new artwork uh, on a new artworks on a daily basis, kind of almost making sure that people are constantly getting value from the platform. Um, we have about half a million images that people have uploaded themselves. Mm. Uh, so people love to take artistic photos. They love to create their own artwork. And right now it's a closed system, so they can only upload it to their own account and their own platform. But we, in the future, we see a publishing platform that can self-publishing platform that sits on top of the uh, of the mural ecosystem. So the idea that already in a closed system we have half a million uh, photographs and artworks uploaded is a big testament. To the, to the idea of this not just being a consumption device, but also being a creation uh, mm -hmm. device as well. And that's why we call it a digital canvas, because mm -hmm. it goes both ways, sure. create and consume. Um, and the final thing that was the most surprising stat that we found is that people interact with it about eight times a day. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were expecting it to be a few times a week at most, but people are seeing it as a new type of device. It's very much a media device where uh, they download a, uh, a collection of artwork, they look through two or three different pieces, and then they settle on something, and then they do that once or mm -hmm. twice a day. So it's a, almost like a meditative process mm -hmm. that allows people to discover art, experience it, and then stick with it. Because there's no notifications, there's no disturbances. It's meant to be a device that gives energy as opposed to taking away energy. And I think we've been successful um, at, at doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of like, it feels like the web 1.0 shift to web 2.0 where it was dynamic websites over static websites. Now we're kind of bringing Dyna that into the home. That's right, dynamic homes, dynamic spaces. Uh, we believe very firmly that in five years, the idea uh, of having um, a dynamic component to your space will be as universal as having a stove or you know uh, um, uh, an air conditioner. Like that idea right now is pretty new, but dynamic environments are coming, and we want to play at the forefront of that, particularly uh, in the more emotional aesthetic realm. Right. You know what's interesting is. You're talk you have these anecdotes that, that's very curious to me of, you know, you see a piece of art and then you want to go to the original. Yeah. What do you think it is about an original piece of art that draws someone, even if they've gotten to see a representation of it on the mural canvas? Yeah. Uh, so for the art that exists in the original world and that is on the mural canvas, I think it's, um, it's part curiosity and it's part like human like uh, desire <laughs> to, to, to experience something in its truest core form. Uh, sure. And then on the other side, when it comes to digital art, this is the original. Like it, it, right. it's on the mural canvas in its original form, better than it would be on a phone or an iPad right. or in a, on a TV or on some other, other device. So you yeah. believe in a future where the art, the best art for the mural canvas would be the art that's designed Specifically for it or for it. Yes, I think yeah, that is the sure. ultimate. That's the ultimate. world view. Absolutely, uh, but it takes time to get there. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. We cannot lead with that um, because art in general is already limited to you know four, five, ten percent of the population in terms of like access. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's start with broadening and educating and kind of creating these experiences. And then we'll start introducing Absolutely. new content, new artwork, new forms of media. And it's already starting to happen. 
but it takes some time. It takes time. Yeah. So I think we've been kind of dancing around this a little bit. Uh, the art world is a huge market. Yeah. You know, there's massive, massive sales. It's billions it's, of dollars. Know, it's, yeah. it's a very big market. But I think a lot of people, when they think about art, they think that the art is created and then the market is built on top of that. But, you know, the reality here, and, and we've yeah. been talking about it a lot, is that economics seems to be a driver of what art actually gets created. You know, you think of, like, oil paintings that were commissioned by the nobility. Yes. You think of Picasso and his whole trajectory. Uh, what do you think is going to be the major shift that we see in the economics of art as we sort of progress through the 21st century? Yeah, I think um, we're already starting to see this somewhat through platforms like Patreon, for instance, mm -hmm. where and, and crowdfunding platforms in the past, where the artists are taking control of their careers mm -hmm. and they are building sustainable, uh, lifelong careers based on the creation of, of their artwork. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think th the idea of almost like a flattening, mm -hmm. uh, where it's not just 1% of artists making 95% of the, the income, um, I think we will see a flattening in that curve mm -hmm. because the digital world allows for distribution to be a lot more universal and a lot more dynamic. Uh, so you can, through the mural canvas, you can already reach tens of thousands of people directly in their home mm -hmm. if you're an artist. That was something that was very, very difficult to do in the past through an unadulterated channel. Sure, you can do it through a website or you can do it through an app, but you're competing with thousands of other things. On the mural platform, if you're an artist and you're on someone's wall, that's all that's up on their wall in that moment in time. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really valuable. So I think there's a flattening of the income curve <laughs> and distribution of uh, for, for artists. Uh, I think the other other thing is um, is a more transparent marketplace. We talked about blockchain yeah. a, a little bit before. Absolutely. And I think the idea of the blockchain will change art, will ch in particular uh, digital art, because um, we will be able to track and see the fluctuations of prices and um, and um, locations and ownership and um, truly know what this market can be for different artists, for different genres, for different types of, of digital art. And then um, the final bit is what the blockchain will allow is for artists to benefit not just from primary transactions. So most of the art world works now is that if you're an artist, you sell your piece for $1,000, that's it. Uh, you don't benefit when that piece is sold for 10000 or 100000 or sure or $10 million, uh, in 5, 10, 50 years. Uh, the blockchain will, will allow for artists to benefit from secondary and tertiary transactions because mm -hmm. they can get a little piece of it moving into the future in, in perpetuity, potentially. Wow. Uh, and so that also helps in flattening of, the, of that curve because it allows artists to benefit from the investment that they make mm -hmm. in their own careers over time in a way that doesn't necessarily force them to keep churning out new art. They can benefit from the great pieces that they made um, in the past. So um, I think in general, it will be a net positive, particularly for the artistic community. I think what will suffer a little bit potentially is the middlemen. I think the idea of galleries, the idea of these big art houses that serve as the middlemen right now, and really market makers for, for art, um, there could be a diminished 
demand or need for them. And so I think they will need to step up their game and provide value. Galleries will need to be true curators, not just vendors. Um, uh, the, the big art houses will need to be value-added partners for the artistic community. They won't be able to just kind of leverage the names in, in the way like auction houses do and, and, and stuff like that. So I think um, the middlemen might suffer the most disruption uh, in the art world compare it to the artists where I think their pie will actually grow. Right. So one of the things that, you know, I feel like you are in a unique position here because there is this question of, you know, what gets to be on here. Yeah. Um, and so how do you define art? Oh, wow. Uh, we're getting philosophical now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. we tend to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I think, you know, there were a few other companies in the space uh, when we launched um, and afterwards as well. And they tended to define art in a very narrow way, at least digital art. They, they were Most of those companies were going after avant-garde, esoteric, you know, GIF art and all that. And I think that's all cool and it's going to be interesting and valuable. But uh, we started with a very simple thesis. And the thesis was that let's start with the things that people know and love first. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we've done. We've, mm -hmm. we've built a baseline of encyclopedic content. Um, Monet, Van Gogh, a Hopper. Uh, artists that when you say to an average person, name me an artist, that's what they will name. Uh, and we didn't want to take like three steps forward. We, let's take a first step forward. Let's build a dynamic, yeah, it changed. Uh, let's build a dynamic experience uh, off of things people know first and foremost, and then we can add new content to it. It's kind of like the old Netflix model. When Netflix launched, they primarily had old movies available on right. DVD. They didn't produce any content. And that's kind of the phase that we're still in. We're, we're populating the encyclopedic baseline with uh, things that people know and love so that they can start exploring and learning. On top of that, that's really phase one. The phase two is being a new medium. And so that's now what we're really starting to do heavily is to be a medium for new types of art to be created. Mm -hmm. Digital art, moving art, um, uh, kind of photographic art, collage art. There's all kinds of stuff that beautiful, beautiful artwork that's being created today that we can be home for in a way that um, no other platform can really be home for. And so that new phase, new medium phase, is really starting to be developed on top of now, uh, on top of the platform now, and that is being led by our, by our curatorial team. We're going out, we're, who are the top visual artists, who are the top motion artists, who are the top video artists, and we go and pick and choose. And so we'll be pushing that much further over the next one, two, three years um, in, in, in the platform. Final part also, just on, on that note also, um, there, we've seen this proliferation of, of crypto assets, mm -hmm. so blockchain-based uh, digital assets. Uh, and the big challenge for those is that, you know, after you buy a crypto asset, like where do you put it? Like if it's a crypto kitty or an artwork or, or something like that. Uh, what we found is that people are starting to use the mural canvas for the home of their crypto digital crypto assets. And that's another world of, of potential and possibility that we're really starting to kind of delve into. Can we be this digital home or digital product that allows people to host uh, their assets, really, uh, their, their, their crypto assets. And that's that's really interesting uh, as well. Go into what a crypto asset is sure. for yes. someone yeah. who might not know. That's a great question. So um, uh, a crypto asset is a digital file, whether it's music, film, television, or in our case, visual art, that is 
block chain supported. So there's actual um, limitation on its quantity, mm. uh, and there's a full transparency around who owns it and um, who is the official kind of rights holder of that of that asset. So it's basically taking the idea of scarcity into the digital world so that you can say legitimately there's only 10, ver 10 copies of this digital asset mm -hmm. and uh, it's all on the blockchain, it's all on the, the, the ledger system so that we know for sure and that way it can grow in value mm -hmm. and it can actually be traded as a true asset. Uh, and that's a really growing market uh, mm -hmm. right now. It's still very, very early, uh, but it's growing over time. And usually it's, ba it's based on the Ethereum stack or one of the other uh, established uh, crypto stacks right now. And so um, one example is CryptoKitties. So it's more of a, a game, but you own these cards of that, that are cats, uh, and there's only one version of it. Mm -hmm. And now you can only put it on your phone, but uh, people are starting to put the cats on their real canvases. And we're like, holy moly, we didn't think this was going to happen, but it, now it's happening. And so that's... Emergent behavior. That's right. So what is the ideal context for a piece of art, in your opinion? Yeah, I think traditionally, it was uh, spatial and aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So like, is this the right space? Mm -hmm. Is this the right environment? Mm -hmm. um, is this the right... Um, uh, kind of visual fit. Mm -hmm. I think what what we're doing is actually kind of expanding that context to include temporal ideas. So, for instance, um, uh, for for July Fourth, we had a slew of artists and exhibits around historical Americana mm. art. So there was a temporal component all of a sudden that created the right context mm -hmm. for that art to be released and featured. On the, on the mural platform. So we're giving temporal uh, ideas to art in a way that hasn't traditionally existed before, and then also uh, spatial and geographic. So for instance, uh, we're starting to do partnerships with different museums. So if you're in New York, you could see what's at the Met uh, right. right now. Or if you're in Tokyo, you could see what's at your local museums. So there's also an element of combining temporal and spatial so that you can get a preview of a new show on your wall, right. you fall in love with it, and then you go to the museum, and then you uh, see it. So I think context was limited in the past, but now it's starting to be expanded in a, uh, through the power of the digital, uh, the, the digital means. Absolutely. Yeah. To sort of follow up on that, yeah. most of who we've been talking to, most of the startups that we've been talking to in it, New York yeah. are software startups. Sure. And so we would like to kind of just talk about, you know, what you think makes hardware startups unique yeah, and what's yeah. different about how they get funded and how they actually run. Yeah. Uh, have you run hardware startups before this? Uh, so I have not. I, before this, I, I um, um, was the CTO and co-founder of a company called Rocket Hub, mm -hmm. which was a crowdfunding platform, kind of similar to Kickstarter and Indiegogo in that vein. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, although we were an online platform, we did do work with a lot of creators of different types, musicians, filmmakers, writers, directors, painters, sculptors. So um, we touched different projects mm -hmm. and also uh, uh, engineering projects, things like that. So that was kind of my first foray into the physical realm. Right. Um, um, so shifting from Rocket Hub to Mural was a big change, right. uh, it, particularly here in New York, because in um, kind of five, six years ago, 
in particular, finding an electrical engineer in New York or finding a mechanical engineer, that's tough. Uh, someone who'd want to join a startup and cut their salary by you know two thirds or something like yeah. that. Uh, where there's software, I feel like that dynamic is already kind of starting to play out in New York over the last 10 years. In hardware, it's just beginning to, to become real. So I, I feel like it's nine times more difficult and there's one element that makes it um, um, easier than, than traditional uh, software companies. In terms of the, the difficulty, I think it's just the, the sheer nature of the complexity is just very, very challenging. Uh, supply chain, logistics, inventory management, cash flow management, um, we are constrained both by supply and demand. Mm -hmm. That is yeah. very rare in software because right. it's you know infinite uh, uh, replication of services usually. Zero uh, marginal uh, cost. Usually. Yeah. Uh, that's right. But for this, there's very much a real marginal cost. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the advantage of being an Apple or Samsung where manufacturers say, sure, you can pay us in, in six months. Mm -hmm. Most of our manufacturers want us to pay them upfront or or very very close to upfront sure so there uh, the trickiness with hardware is making sure that you're growing both hard uh, both supply and demand kind of in unison because if one outpaces the other you will break the scale yeah because uh, if, if you have too much supply and not enough demand you're just sitting on inventory and you're wasting cash yeah. but if you have too much demand and not any supply or not enough supply then you're losing goodwill uh, of the customer base and that's the problem with a lot of these crowdfunding campaigns is that they built a great deal of demand but they have no supply to, 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 to meet that demand so that's that's a difficulty the one thing that is i feel like easier about hardware than than software is that People have been buying physical products for thousands of years. Sure. That's a natural thing. And so because of that, um, we are much more, at least psychologically justified in charging people for $500, $600, $700 for our product because they see it and it's like, yes, this is tangible. I can see the value in it immediately. I will pay for it. Yes. And so that is an advantage that hardware has over software because um, it's much easier to prove the value than uh, in, a, in a kind of a software cloud-based uh, service. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, going back to the supply chain, mm -hmm. where what does the manufacturing process look like? Yeah. How much is done here? How much is done in a factory in Pennsylvania? Sure. Yeah. 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 So um, all of the design and engineering happens here at our offices and with, with our team. Um, then once a design is locked up, uh, we, we source different components and it's very much a global product. Mm. The wood is from uh, different parts of the United States, including Pennsylvania. Uh, some of the electronics are from Asia. Some parts are from Europe. Uh, the final assembly, uh, most of it happens in Asia. Mm. Uh, and um, then it is shipped to the United States and we store it here and then we ship it across the world from, from, from the United States. So we've had to build out a global supply chain right. pretty quickly. Um, and thankfully, my, my co-founder, Jerry, he, he has experience with that, and he's more of the operational side of, of, of the business. And so the team has been very um, st structured to, to support this uh, and to make sure that we have the, the different resources and the different components that, that are necessary to, to facilitate the global supply chain. But it's a it's a... It's a difficult kind of shit show yeah. <laughs> that, that one has to manage on a, on a daily basis, okay. especially now with uh, some of the political things that are going on with tariffs and, oh, and, and, and all those things. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you, 
you know, talking kind of more generally to somebody on the verge of starting their own hardware startup, what are kind of the bigger challenges that you've, you felt like were big successes and were interesting in your journey? Yeah, I think, um, I advise a few hardware startups and the number one thing I stress particularly early on, early on is team is making sure that that early team of three, four people, uh, first of all, it has to be more than one. Like a single founder is very, it's, it's a very difficult thing uh, in software or, or cloud-based or app-based services, but in hardware, it's pretty much impossible. Like you cannot do this alone. Um, so that's like the, the, the one starting point is that um, you, there's, there's a strong necessity for, for, uh, for a founding team. And that, you know, that makes things tricky, right? Because then you talk about equity, then you talk about the kind of how do you split different upside potential. And uh, to be frank, in hardware companies, it takes more of a cooperative approach, being able to uh, provide um, equity and upside mm-hmm. to a larger pool of people early on. Um, I think the second part is leveraging contractors in a strategic way. Uh, contractors are almost kind of a, 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 a bad word when it comes to starting a, a software company. But when it comes to hardware, it's absolutely necessary early on because certain parts of the development process, industrial design, um, uh, supply chain management, mechanical engineering, sourcing of the different components, it's very difficult for a startup to have expertise in all those things mm-hmm. early on. So the non-core things to the business um, uh, can be uh, uh, outsourced for short periods of time to trusted good contractors or firms uh, that can support. So having an ecosystem of support is really, really key. Mm-hmm. And in New York, that didn't really exist 10 years ago, but it's now starting to, to, to grow. There are industrial design firms that help companies kind of get off the ground. There are sourcing companies that help people connect to different manufacturers across the world. Mm-hmm. So uh, being able to strategically leverage outside help is really, really important. And then the third part is capital. I think uh, this is a capital-intensive thing. Uh, it, it's, it requires a good deal of money earlier on uh, to get off the ground. So bootstrapping a hardware company is tough. Um, I wouldn't say it's impossible depending on the product, but it is very, very challenging. So having some cash in the bank and being able to strategically raise money to grow at, based on the milestones that the company is achieving is really, really key. And I think that ecosystem is also pretty nascent. Um, but is starting to grow further. I mean, I think San Francisco is a little bit ahead of New York when it comes to hardware funding, but or a lot ahead. Uh, but um, it, it, it's something that's beginning to, to grow. But having good capital partners is really, really key for uh, for a hardware company because, as I mentioned before, it takes a lot of money to produce things. And as, as a company scales, um, the capital requirements grow pretty quickly uh, until there's a, a self-fulfilling kind of a cycle where the company can actually generate uh, generate money. That's all for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.